Good day to your kingdom family. This is Johan Potgieter with John chapter 18. Now, as we started our journey through the gospel of John, you will remember when we got to chapter 10, I mentioned that from the beginning of chapter 10 to the end of chapter 17, it is really one huge, massive, massive message, or then a, a huge package deal, if I can call it that. And I, I want to say this, you know, if, if we were all in the same place, not under lockdown, but in a place of conference or uh, fellowship and, and gathering. And I had the privilege of teaching from chapter 10 onwards to the end of chapter 17. It would have been so wonderful because we would have done a conference throughout the whole day and then sleep at night and, and reflect on everything that the Holy Spirit would have would reveal to us. And the next day we carry on and we would journey through the Gospel of John, obviously in a lot more depth. But that would have been so awesome. So in all those chapters, we saw that there shouldn't have been chapter divisions, that the, the end of the previous chapter flowed into the beginning of the next chapter and the next and the next, up to where Jesus now shared with his disciples the revelation. And I believe they were even illumined at this particular point in time in the understanding of the significance of the intimacy in the relationship that Jesus had with his father the fellowship that he had with his father and the way that he was in unison with his father. And the disciples were the beneficiaries of receiving all of that. So it's with that thought that we now go into chapter 18, where we are going to change lanes now, because chapter 18 is really the, the place where we're going to see the confrontation, where Jesus is being confronted. He's being arrested that he's, at his trials. And then in chapter 19, we're going to go into the crucifixion. So in 18 verse 1, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in the New King James and some of the other translations, it says, I am he. But the he is in italics, which means it should really read, I am. And again, Jesus is using the tetragrammation from Exodus 3.14. And also we're going to look at Isaiah 43 verse 10. But now watch what happens. And Judas who betrayed him also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Another translation says they fell backwards to the ground. And then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. That's from John seventeen twelve. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And that's important. We're going to get to the, the meaning of the names later on. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? 
Now, in just one or two places, I'm going to refer to the other Gospels as well, because remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give different accounts of the same event. So I want to try and stick as close to John's rendering of this particular event as possible. But when you look at verse 1, I want you to see the confidence and the intention of Jesus in the way that he goes into this portion of the garden. Now, we are told it was a cordoned off area of the garden that Jesus went to with his disciples. And he goes in with a knowledge and a foreknowledge of knowing what is awaiting him. Yet he goes in here and he knows what is going to happen, but he goes in with confidence and assurance, knowing that this is part of the, the mission that he has to accomplish. And you know, when I read again and I saw how Judas now comes with this detachment of troops and officers of, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and I look at that and I, I looked at detachment of troops and in essence they are saying that the, the larger number would have been about 600 and the smallest number would have been about 200. So let's say there were about two to 300 men, soldiers that came in here, plus then priests and Pharisees. Let us think about this a bit. How many people did they come to arrest? Because they asked here, for Jesus. They didn't ask for Jesus and his disciples, they, the, the followers, only Jesus. So let's estimate that there were probably about 300, 300 plus people to arrest one man. You see, the chief priests and Pharisees, their whole scheme in this exercise to have Jesus arrested, it is so, it's so cowardly I cannot help but to think how these guys were such hypocrites again in the way that they brought in the Romans to now make sure that Jesus is not going to escape what they have planned for him. I've heard this. I am not sure how true this is. So don't quote me on this. But I have heard that in order just for Jesus to be crucified, the Jews broke approximately 52 of their own laws just for Jesus to be executed. And I can believe that. Whether it's 52 or less or more, it doesn't matter. The point is, that's what they did. And they came with lanterns, with torches and weapons. And Jesus in verse 4 says, or rather in verse 4, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward. I want you to see the confidence again. Look at Jesus, confident, he is assured of what he's got to do. He went forward and he said to them, whom are you seeking? And then they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I know there's a, there's a couple of teachings on why did these men fall backwards when he said, I am. There's a number of thoughts and ideas about this, but I think the one that sits closest to my heart is the one that I have to assume that this is possibly what happened. And again, you can differ, uh, uh, you know, as far as this is concerned with me. You can differ with me. There's no problem there. But I do believe because G uh, Judas was amongst them that I believe guilt crumbled before calmness of innocence. And I want to say that again. I believe that guilt, when Jesus said, I am, and he expresses the I am of God, of the Godhead, 
that the guilt of these men in having become so corrupt in wanting just to have Jesus arrested, their guilt crumbled before the calmness of Jesus' innocence. Now, when they fell backwards and they asked, or Jesus asked them a second time, whom are you seeking? I want you to know that the Bible here doesn't say they got up quickly and they stood again. <laughs> and they asked again for Jesus of Nazareth. I do believe that these guys were still on the ground when Jesus asked them a second time, whom are you seeking? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, they answered from their backs where they were on the ground with their, lant <laughs> their lanterns, their torches uh, uh, and, and the weapons and so forth. Now, you can just imagine how they were balancing, guys, sorry, I have this vivid imagination, how these guys were lying on their backs, these, these soldiers, with their lanterns and torches, trying to balance these things, plus then the weapons in coming to arrest Jesus. I believe that flesh here, the flesh of man, couldn't stand the very presence of God. When you look at this portion of scripture and you see the, the absolute supremacy of Jesus, his absolute power and the essence of his magnificence, you cannot help but to, again, become appreciative of your Lord and your Savior in the power that he carried when he walked the earth. Now, remember, Jesus was endowed with power from on high, when he came out of the water of baptism, it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And remember, the Holy Spirit stayed. In Acts 10.38, it says how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healed all those who were oppressed of the devil. And when this happened, Jesus now, again, he's emphasizing the fact that they've come to seek him, they've come to get him, they've come to arrest him, and that the disciples need to go free. And again, we saw in John chapter 17, where he said to his father, and he promised his father, that of the ones that you have given me, I haven't lost one of them. So here Jesus is again covering the disciples. And then Peter, now guys, again, I want us to think about this. Let's say again, there's approximately about 300 people here coming to arrest Jesus. What are the odds against Jesus and his disciples? It's just him. Let's for a moment take the Godhead of Jesus away and it's just Jesus and his 11 disciples. Peter pulls out his sword. <laughs> I want you to see really the, the innocence of his love. The, also the the volume of his love for Jesus, the intensity of his love for Jesus. He pulls out his, his, his sword and he, he, he knocks off Malchus's ear. Now, I know there are other scholars, and as I was studying this, I saw there were other scholars who mentioned the fact that they also believe, just like I do, that Peter was not, Peter was not a swordsman. Peter was a fisherman. <laughs> so I believe Peter at this particular point in time at this juncture wasn't aiming for Malchus's ear. I believe he was going for this guy's head and he must have ducked and that's when 
he chopped off his ear. Now, we know um, in one of the other Gospels that Jesus just healed him. Jesus just got that ear and just put it back and healed the man. Now, shouldn't just that exercise have been sufficient for many of these who saw it just to turn to Christ, just to turn to Jesus? In any case, this happens and Jesus heals him. And then Jesus says to him, Peter, hold on a minute. You know what? You're not, and I'm paraphrasing, you're not supposed to be fighting this fight for me because there's a cup that I'm supposed to drink and you cannot short circuit the process now. Do you remember earlier on as well in the Gospels, at one point, Peter came and he said to Jesus, Lord, this is not going to happen to you when Jesus said that he's got to go and be uh, persecuted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the, 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 the leaders of the Jews. And he said, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. This can't happen to you. And then remember Jesus turned around and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? Because he wasn't speaking the things of God. He couldn't short circuit the process that Jesus was supposed to go through. And then, by the way, you will read it in one of the other Gospels where Jesus at this point said, he says, Peter, or then to whomever was listening, don't you know that I could at this point call in 12 legions of angels to come and protect me and come and defend me? Now, I, I wanted to look at this a bit, so I went back into it again. Now, how much power would 12 legions of angels actually have? I don't know if you've ever studied this. Now, I don't even think we can start to imagine the power of 12 legions of angels. Now, a Roman legion was between five and 6,000. So let's say 6,000 was a legion. 12 legions, therefore, is 72,000. But Jesus said the Father could give him more than that. Hundreds of thousands of angels at his disposal. Now consider something else. In Isaiah 37 verse 36, we read that one angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. Now, on that basis, 12 legions of angels could slay 13,320,000,000. Now, that number is hard for me even to comprehend. But statistics say that there are now about, what, 7 point something million, rather billion people upon the earth. So it would only take half of 12 legions of angels, in other words, six legions, to deal with all of mankind. What was Jesus' point here? Very, very simply, if Peter or all of the disciples or the angels of heaven themselves should intervene and save Jesus from the cross at this point, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that he must die so that all of us could live? He was born to die. He never asked to be spared from that. Knowing that his death and resurrection was the only way of salvation for all mankind. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at the persecution of Jesus, when we look at the confrontation of Jesus, and we look at what Malchus's name means at this particular point in time. So I believe Malchus was the kind of more of the ranked officers who came forward to want to arrest Jesus, and Malchus's name means king. So here was Malchus, whose name means king, to arrest the king, <laughs> the king of the Jews. How significant is that? We come to the first trial of the Jewish um, Sanhedrin, where they now have Jesus arrested, and Jesus appears 
before Annas. Now, by the way, the name Annas means grace or gracious. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas means, are you ready for this? Depression. Imagine a mother calling her son depression. And this guy has to live with this from his childhood up to where he is now as the high priest that particular year. And remember, it was Caiaphas that also advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people instead of the whole Jewish nation. And then verse 15, it talks about Peter following Jesus, and so did the other disciple. By the way, when you see in the scriptures and you read the Bible there, it was really talking about John, because John didn't mention his own name there. But the one who wrote the gospel of John is the one that was with Peter. It says then in verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Isn't it so true that the main thing that they were concerned about is who his followers were, how well they were acquainted with him and following him as disciples and what he taught them. I want to say to you again, it's so important what you are being taught. You'll find in the book of Acts in chapter 2, it says, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and also in prayer. So it's very important that we understand that the doctrine that Jesus taught his disciples was really what he was confronted on as well, right here at the end. Jesus is now before his first Jewish trial before Annas. From verse 24, he's now at the second trial before Caiaphas. There are two Jewish trials and two Roman trials. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So he went from grace, <laughs> the guy who was called grace, to the guy who was called depression. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, and therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And you'll find that three times uh, Peter denies Jesus, and then the cock crows. In verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. Now, this is his first Roman trial. Jesus had four trials, guys, two Jewish and two Roman trials. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled that they might eat the Passover. You know, you know I, want, I want to interject here and say that I believe John, the apostle here when he wrote this, actually wrote this with a little bit of, sarcasm to say here are these guys who break so many of their own laws just to have jesus arrested for him to be tried and to be crucified and they don't want to go into the roman praetorium because it's to mix with the gentiles and that and it was actually more an oral law than really a, a written law that they were now not to be defiled by gentiles so that they might eat the passover again i want to emphasize what hypocrites then in verse 31, then Pilate said to them, you take him and you judge him according to your own law. Because now they said to, 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 to uh, Pilate, we wouldn't have brought him before you if he was not a criminal. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Do you remember previously as we went through John, how the Jews in various, at various times and in various occasions, how they tried to put Jesus to death. Do you remember that? And it says, and Jesus passed right through them. He passed through their midst. Why? Because it wasn't his time. 
that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Do you remember that was in John chapter 12, verse 33 to verse about 36, where we said that Jesus, when he said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, I will draw all unto me. And then he said that the, the prince of the power of the air, the kingdom of the king of darkness was going to be cast out. Do you remember that? That it was his judgment. And it says here, verse 33, Then Pilate entered the praetorium, and, he, and, he, and again he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you speaking uh, for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And now Jesus speaks about his kingdom. Jesus doesn't tell him, well, I've done this and I've done that and the other. Because Jesus already said that the only time that he preached was in public places. He never did anything secretly. He preached publicly. He says then in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate then off, uh, therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus says, You rightly say that I am a king, and for this very cause I was born. For this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Verse 38, Jesus, in what he now said to Pilate, brings this man to a point of asking one of the biggest questions in the scriptures. And it's this. He says to Jesus, what is truth? Do you remember John 14 verse 6 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here Pilate asks him, what is truth? And many of his descendants are still alive today. And I always say that tongue-in-cheek. Where how many people today are not inquiring about what truth really is? And it saddens me that so many people have turned to new age. So many people have turned to philosophy, worldly philosophy. So many people have turned to the knowledge of this world in order to try and find truth. And all you will ever find, if it's not in Jesus, are facts. And when you come to Jesus... You find him who is the truth. And the fourth trial of Jesus is in verse 39. It's his second Roman trial before Pilate. Because now he says, You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. So what is your challenge from chapter 18 that we have just worked through simply this this world will always accuse you no matter what you've done or what you have left undone you will always stand in accusation in this world and sometimes the accusations will even come from people who are very close to you sometimes the accusations will call be called in from those who are even the ones who say that they love you. But I want to encourage you today to say to you that there is one who has excused you from sin in all its forms and manifestations. 
and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was accused so that, so that you can be excused. And because of him, you are accepted, acknowledged, and approved of God completely because of who Jesus is. That is why your relationship with Jesus was never based on, on who you are. Your relationship and intimate salvation walk with Jesus was never based on your person and how good you've been. Your relationship and fellowship with Jesus in your salvation and walk with Him has always been based on who He is. You know why? Because we still fail and we still mess, mess up and we still trip over things in this life. But because Jesus Christ, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another translation says, and forever He'll be the same. You need to know that in that life that you have with Christ, you can be confident, you can be secure, you can be steadfast, and you can be strong, and you can be settled in the fact that the relationship that you have with Him and He with you is based on who He is, on His character and not yours. I don't know about you, but that gives me incredible confidence in my relationship with Jesus. I didn't read Isaiah 43 verse 10. I said I would read it. I would like you to read that for yourself and you will find Jesus again there refers to himself as the I am. Father, I pray tonight in the mighty name of Jesus that as we've listened to this message now, Lord, every single one of us, that we will come to grips again about the incredible price that Jesus paid. We will come to grips with the fact that Jesus took all the persecution that was due to us upon himself so that we can walk free from what he took upon his own body. We thank you, Father, that we can be free today, spirit, soul, and body, because of the complete work that Jesus has accomplished for us. And I pray tonight, Father, that every single person listening to this will realize that they are accepted, approved, and acknowledged of God because of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.